0: Welcome back to Red Flag Radio. This is episode two of our two-part series on the housing crisis. In the rest of our interview with Martin Barker, we took a step back and talked about how the capitalist system has shaped our cities, how things would be different in a socialist society, and we talked about some of the amazing struggles of the past to demand that housing be a human right. This episode was recorded on Gadigal Land, as always, and we hope you enjoy it.
1: Dear comrades and friends.
0: Well, what are some of the ways that cities and housing has been shaped by the capitalist system and by its priorities and the market?
1: Yeah, I think there's uh, a bunch of ways uh, that capitalism has shaped the cities that we live in uh, now. One of them is that the development really of cities uh, under capitalism has been largely about the needs uh, of production. So, getting large numbers of workers uh, together in very close proximity, you know, close to big factories, workplaces, um, you know, the places where they have to go to produce the things that are going to be sold uh, on the market. And I think as well that cities really reflect the class divide uh, that is in society. So you have gentrified uh, inner city suburbs, luxury living uh, for the rich in their penthouses, uh, you know, beachside uh, mansions. Uh, and then for ordinary people, for working class people, uh, it's suburban wastelands, it's greenfields uh, developments without proper infrastructure uh, without proper public transport, high tolls uh, on the roads, no green spaces, not enough schools uh, not enough uh, hospitals.
2: some of us were um, campaigning for the victorian socialists um, down in Melbourne uh, last election and if you go to some of the like the furthest fringes of suburban development, you just see uh, housing estates that are built you know with roads that end nowhere and um you know street signs called like library avenue or something and there's no library like no infrastructure kind of thing and that's i i I think a real feature of you know every city under capitalism but you know particularly here um in sydney when you compare the kind of infrastructure and amenities that would exist in some of the posh suburbs that the rich and the elite live in compared to you know western sydney notoriously um and yeah all All of this um, is just shaped by, yeah, the changing priorities of capitalism. It's actually a lot of the leafy inner city suburbs used to be very working class um, in nature um, before production changed and kind of pushed people further to the fringes.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to talk about because it's been quite a development in a way, like a change in capitalism over the last sort of 60 years that now working class people don't live anywhere near the places where they work and spend a lot of their times. They live in these, like you said, underfunded um, uh, suburbs in the middle of nowhere that have you know very little infrastructure and then they have to commute extremely long distances. You know, I mean, in Sydney, it's notorious um, for people commuting you know, over an hour and a half, like hour and a half kind of minimum uh, for a lot of working class people um, to their places of work. Meanwhile, the kind of inner city uh, areas that were once working class are now have been coveted by the rich and um and taken over. Uh, it's one of the reasons a lot of the public housing in those areas have been sold off. Uh, it was. It's not just to make profits for the the developers that get those contracts. It was literally so that rich people can live in nice places on the harbour, for example, um, and and uh, drive working class people out further and further into the suburbs. And you see a really gruesome, uh, you know, picture of it here in Sydney, where Western Sydney, uh, which is the fastest growing part of Australia, is like unlivable pretty much you know it's already because of the extreme heat the lack of um, infrastructure the fact that the whole thing is basically paved over with asphalt and therefore you know a massive heat sink um, it's pretty much unlivable for these working class communities and they you know still have to pay uh, to get on the toll roads to get to work every day.
1: Mm. Yeah, and maybe Miller's point in Sydney is a good example uh, of the way that the city gets shaped uh, by the needs uh, of capitalism. So, this is a, a suburb in Sydney next to the rock, so on the, on the harbour, um, and was once next uh, to the docks uh, in Sydney, and so. Uh, originally, in the nineteenth, late nineteenth century, very working class community, um, really a very poor standard of housing, really slums. Actually, the um, uh, the state government took it over as the first real public housing uh, in uh, New South Wales at the early twentieth century, because actually bubonic plague swept through uh, the community at the start of the twentieth century, and the housing was resumed uh, by the state because they needed the workers to have at least some sort of basic standard of living so that they. Uh, could continue uh, to work on the docks and not, for instance, die uh, of the bubonic uh, plague. And so a very strong working class community uh, built up there. But then um, changing needs of capitalism, the docks get shut down uh, in the late 70s, uh, early 80s. And suddenly you don't need uh, workers living uh, close to the docks so that they can be on call to you know dock the ships unload the ships uh that sort of thing and actually now they become a hindrance that now these are actually just uh uh unworthy people who are occupying prime real estate miller's point is on the harbor um and so in uh 2014 the liberal government made the decision uh that actually these public housing tenants you know only paying a you know, $80, $100 a week rent. They didn't deserve to live uh, near the water. Actually, this is somewhere where the rich want it to be. So we're going to sell this off um, and we're going to sell it off to rich people and, um, you know, sold – And evicted a community, really, that had been there for 150 years. Um, And now it's just a ghetto for the rich, really. Um, I think, ironically, actually, one of the selling points uh, when, you know, the real estate agents were flogging off these properties was to really try and sell the working class history Mm -hmm. of the area and all the sort of like the culture of it, all the stories. Um, So, you know, this is something to attract the rich people um, into the area to pay them millions of dollars uh, for the homes. But of course… local colour. Yeah, exactly. But the last thing they actually want is working class people there. The people who actually created all those stories, all the culture, they have to be uh, turfed out. And all the
0: pubs have to, you know, be renovated and turned into
1: fancy bars. Exactly, yeah. And so it's just now just become this sterile enclave where actually most of the properties are just advertised uh, on Airbnb so the investors who bought them can make thousands of dollars a week out of tourists.
2: And a big part of this shift if you think about when actually the city, the rich people didn't used to want to live here. They used to want to live in much larger properties on the outskirts, at least in Sydney. And it was you know workers who lived next to factories that were in the city. A big part of the shift, both in terms of changes in production, is also cars. Um, I read the other day Sydney is the most tolled, like has the most toll roads um, of any other place in the world. Maybe fact check me on that one but that's true it It sounds unbelievable but it's true i've driven around sydney so i feel it yep it feels very real um and yeah just the idea that you know it's not just the question of like housing and public housing but every aspect of working class people's lives in cities is shaped by the priorities of capitalism they'd rather you have to have this atomized existence where you have your own car you live far out in western sydney you have to travel for like an hour to get to work and you have to pay for the privilege of driving on the road uh, to even get uh, to your workplace.
0: Yeah, it's just a neat way of sucking like three hours extra out of people's lives essentially, out of their working lives per day. Um, and you just think like it's one of those really ridiculous inefficiencies of capitalism actually. You know, capitalism is always claiming to be this perfectly efficient system because of the market, but actually you have people fucking wasting their time and their lives every day because they live so far away from the actual productive work that they do. And that is all purely in service of, yeah, rich people getting to have nice townhouses in the city um, and rich people getting to make a profit out of toll roads and out of increasingly privatized uh, transport systems as well, like all the buses and um, trams and stuff. It's, uh, I think it's pretty much just the railway that is still in public hands and they're definitely looking to sell that off in the future.
1: Yeah, exactly. and I mean, again, in terms of, uh, you know, the 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 inefficiencies of a supposedly efficient system, like the New South Wales state government built the West Connect, uh system, billions and billions and billions of dollars for these uh, very expensive uh, toll roads. You know, this is money being made both by private corporations to build the thing, but they're going to make, who are making the money uh, off the tolls. But uh, New South Wales Department of Transport did their own study about actually what would have been, Uh, the best way to address the problem that WestConnex was supposed to address, which was like problems with commuting in from these uh, suburbs uh, out in the West. Their conclusion was actually they just should have built more public transport. They should have upgraded the train system. So this would have been far cheaper. It would have been much easier to move large numbers of people uh, in from the Western suburbs into the uh, the city uh, to work. But obviously this absolutely cuts against uh, yeah, this sort of neoliberal uh, logic um, that everything has to be done uh, through the private sector and uh, for profit. Um, the fact that it's going to mean uh, worse outcomes and cost more money is absolutely irrelevant. Our are
0: What do we want? Public housing! Okay, Cherish, so you were arrested recently uh, in relation to the housing campaign. Can you explain how that happened?
3: Yeah, I was arrested in February, um, you know, six hours after organising a small protest in Martin Place against the $5 billion, you know, half-year record profits that the Commonwealth Bank was posting. And the interest, you know, at the time, about 10 interest rate hikes that the RBA was overseeing, which, you know, was putting up mortgages for thousands and thousands of workers class families uh, and therefore putting up rents as well um, that young people were facing and you know six hours after this protest actually i was met by five or six police officers banging on my door in the middle of the night um, and who put me under arrest and took me to day street police station in the city for four hours um four hours they held me in a cell uh you know and actually charged me with trespassing and why do you think they did that I think they did that because you know they actually wanted to intimidate me as a young activist and a woman who's you know speaking out about the rental crisis facing young people right now they know I've organized other rallies in Sydney so I think they targeted me for being on the megaphone leading the chants uh, and they decided they were going to make an example out of me Um, but I think important did it work (laughs) (laughs) no (laughs) I think they definitely fucked with the wrong person and you know the whole way through the paddy wagon, I was thinking, I can't believe they've done this to me. I can't believe they've done this and they're going to pay for this. You know, I'm (laughs) thinking of the ways that I could get the word out. Uh, I think that's why they did it in the middle of the night as well. You know, none of my comrades were there. None of the media were there. It wasn't, you know, it's hard to call anyone. Um, when you're in a cell, I was lucky. My housemate was there to follow me to the station and call people on my behalf. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, the main reason they did it as well is to impose these, heinous strict bail conditions on me, which we've seen them put on you know climate activists again and again, uh, you know, from Violet Coco to others part of Blockade Australia to stop them from organizing and entering the city.
2: Well let's talk about socialism. Uh because uh obviously a whole series of the demands, kind of social democratic demands that are being raised, like let's build more public housing, let's have you know rent freezes and rent cuts. Um, or regulated rent, all of these, you know, demands are supportable, um, you know, for revolutionary socialists. But why, why would socialism actually be a solution to both the housing crisis, but also, you know, all the other fucked elements of how capitalism, um, you know, destroys working class living standards in our city?
1: Well, look, I think you can actually pretty easily imagine how different things could be uh, for something uh, like housing. So, at the moment, house is a commodity. So your access to a thing that everybody needs is just dictated uh, by whether you can pay for it. Um, the house doesn't get built unless someone's making money off it. You can't buy it unless you've got the money uh, to do it. In a socialist society, it's not about whether someone uh, has the money to pay for it. It's about do people need houses uh, to live in? And so the the vast resources that are generated, the productive resources that are generated actually, you know, by ordinary people uh, in their workplaces um, could be put uh, to actually providing a high standard uh, of housing, of living um, for ordinary people. We could just build the homes actually that people need. Um, We could build the schools and hospitals close by uh, that people need. We could have uh, a public Uh, transport system that could easily and efficiently uh, move uh, people uh, around. We could transform uh, the inner cities, uh, not so that they'd be uh, enclaves uh, for the wealthy, but so they could be high quality, medium density uh, housing. So people don't have to live, you know, three, four hours away uh, from where they work. But the key thing about that is getting rid uh, of the market that the market is the only way uh, that these things can be provided, providing them on the basis uh, of need, and also uh, getting rid of the capitalist class, really. The people who, at the moment, control all of these productive decisions, the ones you know, who control uh, the decisions that are made uh, by government, and who um, uh, whose priority is what's gonna make uh, the most uh, amount of money, not what people actually need. I feel
0: like a key element of it would be just actual planning. You know, there's this thing called urban planning that some people study at universities and it um, supposedly happens, but actually our cities are not planned really and and, and housing is not really planned. Uh, it's planned by the invisible hand of the market and, you know, the profit-making of, of capitalists and investors rather than just sitting down and going, what do people need? Like, like you said, Martin, what do people actually need? Um, and where do they need it and how are we going to build it and how do we make it really good actually as well? How do we make it really enjoyable to live in this city? Um, I think that would be a, an important aspect of it and that's something that the, the working class would be able to actually do democratically together to decide what are the kind of priorities um, of this uh, of of us <laughs> uh, and of this economy and to actually act on those. I mean one thing, like I just think the that socialism would radically shift what what cities look like. It would radically change um, everything about what it is to live in, in this society. Um, for one thing that I always think is like, Just cars are really inefficient. I'm not saying no one's allowed to have a car or whatever. They can be fun. But just what a stupid way to run a society that everybody wakes up at the same time every day and all gets in their little cars, all their separate little cars and drives on toll roads. I mean, I just think in a socialist society, you would have... More trains, man. Just more trains. They fit like 3,000 people in a a train. Spoken like a socialist train driver. (laughs) (laughs) Just rip up the roads, put down little tracks everywhere. There's buses too. I'm only half joking about that. Like I just think – it would, it would be better for the environment, better for ordinary people, more efficient. You could get, you know, anywhere and faster speeds as well. I mean, everybody knows if you've ever commuted in one of these big cities that you spend most of the time going 10Ks an hour, you know, waiting at traffic lights.
2: And I think that point about the environment is really important that, like, we've got all of these crises that are because of capitalism and the market the climate crisis, now the cost of living crisis, a housing crisis, all of these things need to be understood as interrelated to each other. And, you know, there are demands that we can raise in social movements and maybe fight for and maybe even win some things. But actually you can't resolve any of these without challenging capitalism at its core, like obviously the environmental crisis, like we have to stop digging up and burning fossil fuels. But actually every aspect of production from end to end, every aspect of consumption end to end, um, because it's shaped by profit and capitalism, um, is environmentally, ecologically destructive, not just on carbon emissions, but in a whole bunch of different ways. So, you know, you look at our cities um, and every aspect of them has to be reorganised and you would need a society based on democratic planning to actually do any of that, um, to stop Western Sydney from being a heat sink, you know, to um, stop the reliance on fossil fuels for energy, for transportation, all of that.
1: Yeah. I think that's it. Like so much is already known really actually about, um, you know, how to produce high quality homes, how to produce homes that have, um, you know, limited environmental impact that are sustainable, you know, even urban planning experts know exactly how much green space you need outside, you know, of your front yard in order to have, you know, to experience sort of feelings of relaxation and peace. Like the the, the, the knowledge is there and then you can just imagine how much that could be expanded, through, you know, if working class people, as the majority of people had democratic control over those sorts of planning processes and the creativity really of the possible solutions uh, that people uh, could come up with. But this means having to liberate all of the productive capacity all the immense material resources of society um, from profit from control uh, by capitalists and use it instead on the basis of actually what do we need how can actually we you know solve these issues what actually is uh, going to work best and i think then really like you know it might it might seem like dreams that uh, you know sort of to talk about you know, sort of mass train systems or things like that. But these are just very realistic, very uh, achievable things. Um, if you can, if you get rid of the market, if you get rid of the control of, of capitalists and actually make these decisions uh, in, a, in a democratic way um, uh, on the basis of what people actually need.
0: Yeah, you would just make rational decisions. I think another thing is like reviving the cities. You know, most like the inner cities, these these supposed hubs of the kind of broader cities, um, I'm pretty dead a lot of the time or like, I don't know, we've talked a lot about Sydney, but I'll just <laughs> use that as an example. Like, um, you know, it's kind of a culturally dead uh, dead zone in a way because it's just been used for high rise office blocks for fucking marketing firms, you know, hotels and um, very expensive restaurants and cafes. But in a socialist society, I think there would be some importance placed on the center, the place that was easy for everybody to get to, you could, you would have culture and art, and you know meeting halls. In a society where there was actual democratic decision making happening on a local level, you would have like halls where people actually meet and discuss things, and libraries and all sorts. Like um, I think there would be the, the real reviving of a kind of um, city culture as well that's been really dead.
1: And I think as well, just in terms of, you know, how people uh, live, you can look at um, just the homes uh, that people live in. At the moment, pe- people live, you know, sort of individually in families, in in units or in homes that are separated uh, from other properties. There's no sort of communal uh, living, no sort of communal uh, experience. And actually, I think there's really nothing natural about that. I don't think it's particularly how people uh, want to live. I think Actually, most people would want to live in a far more connected and uh, in in much more uh, a community. And you can imagine how that could be transformed. People with, you know, their own private spaces, you know, to, to, uh, to sleep in, you know, to read a book in whatever, but a whole series of connected and communal spaces so that actually uh, people aren't living in these atomized, isolated sort of boxes next to each other, but actually Uh, living together with people um, in in some sort of a community.
2: And that point about the family under capitalism um, demonstrates how all these problems and oppressions that capitalism produces are all interconnected. So... Uh, Under capitalism, you know, you're forced uh, to live in a family unit, you know, for a lot of people, it can be a source of sexism and oppression and abuse. Um, uh, But it's also one of the only fallbacks that you have to rely on under capitalism. Like, think about um, the number of, you know, young people who are adults, who basically have to continue to live in their um, parent- parental home well into their twenties or move back in to save um, for a mortgage uh, just because they can't afford the Sydney or the Melbourne or whatever rental market. And if you're unlucky enough to be alienated um, from your family that's almost a guarantee that you're going to be living in poverty. Like I read uh, recently that uh, one of the fastest growing demographics for homelessness is elderly divorced women. Um, So, you know, you can't (laughs) simply uh, separate from a relationship you don't want to be in anymore, possibly even an abusive one, uh, without under capitalism uh, being, you know, forced into poverty and possibly even uh, homelessness.
0: Yeah, you can really see how, you know, when we often as socialists talk about how in order to get rid of like women's oppression or LGBTI oppression, actual material, real changes need to happen um, that undermine the economic and social basis of those oppressions. And this is one of them, like access to housing, just the right to friggin' live in a house. Uh, The fact that women do not have that under capitalism as just a basic human right means that they regularly have to, you know, stay with abusive partners or, you know, don't have options or whatever. Hey, Eddie. So you're a prominent member of the housing campaign, Get a Room and a Student, right, at uh, at Macquarie. Macquarie University. Yeah, got it right. Uh, So why are you here protesting today?
4: I'm here protesting because the housing crisis is deepening and Labor has nothing to offer except, like, profit-forward, market-led solutions that basically involve gambling on the stock market in order to reduce money that will then be funded into the the same private developers who are building all of this luxury housing that ordinary people can't afford while the public housing wait list just, you know, expands exponentially. Well, one thing that the Labour bill includes is they've actually gotten rid of any reference to housing as a human right inside that bill.
0: Can you explain why and why that's fucked?
4: Well, I think Labour is a party that wants to run Australian capitalism and one of the most kind of basic, (laughs) twisted, fucked up cornerstones of capitalism is that it takes everything that should be a human right, that is a human necessity, whether it's food or medicine and now housing, And instead of just saying we have enough stuff, everyone can have what they need and we'll distribute it according to what people need. Um, they turn it into an excuse for you know, private capitalists to make a profit over all the things that human beings need to survive by selling it for exorbitant prices on the market. I think Labour see the writing on the wall. They know that this housing crisis is you know, very profitable for developers and they're laughing all the way to the bank. And they don't want to keep anything in their program that could possibly challenge that or challenge the way capitalism turns these essential things into commodities.
0: All right, well, we've talked a bit about our our wish list for the socialist future, but uh, let's talk about struggle in the present and actually in the past because there's been heaps of struggles throughout Australian history and, and world history uh, around the issue of housing where working-class people have demanded that housing be a right. Um, yeah, can you talk about some of those?
1: Yeah, I think there's uh, a couple of examples um, that we can talk about. Uh, of people struggling uh, around housing uh, from New South Wales. So in the 1930s, uh, in the midst uh, of depression, um, large numbers uh, of working class people uh, made unemployed and faced eviction um, from their from their homes. Uh, and it was a period, though, uh, of some uh, militancy, of some combativeness uh, from the working class, uh, particularly uh, amongst. Um, militants organized around uh, the Communist Party uh, of Australia and working class communities organized to fight uh, the eviction they called now the eviction riots but there's just like a whole series uh, of working class communities in inner Sydney uh, inner city uh, Sydney organizing to picket homes that where workers were at risk of eviction pitch battles uh, between Uh, workers and bailiffs and landlords uh, and the cops. There's even a shooting battle actually uh, in Union Street uh, in Newtown where uh, members of the Communist Party um, occupied uh, a property um, where the landlord was going to evict the tenant and the cops came in uh, shooting uh, to try and break it up. But Mass demonstrations uh, as well, like 100,000 people uh, on the streets of Sydney um, over housing. Uh, and trying to defend working class uh, people's rights to actually continue uh, to have uh, a home. Then more recently, uh, in the 1970s, uh, the struggles uh, of the Builders' Laborers Federation, which I think are just incredibly inspiring uh, when you're talking about, well, what actually could be done to try and have a fight uh, about housing uh, and trying to address the housing crisis. So Builders' Labourers Federation not focused on uh, Parliament uh, or what deal could be done uh, with the government. They saw ordinary people's power as power in the workplace because they were the ones who actually were doing all the work. And that if they said, actually, we're not going to do the work, that this stopped the profits of the bosses. Um, so the Builders Labourers Federation organising in the construction industry uh, in Sydney uh, in the uh, in the nineteen seventies, and they took up a, a whole range of uh, fights. People might have heard uh, of the Green Bands, um, where they would refuse to work um, on construction sites unless their demands uh, about, for instance, saving parklands uh, in Sydney were met, but also over housing. So. One of the key moments in their struggles over housing was the so-called Battle of the Rocks um, when the New South Wales government actually just wanted to demolish working-class housing uh, in the rocks. And the BLF uh, fought that uh, with the local uh, residents, again, in pitch standoffs between um, the BLF between the, and the residents uh, and, and the cops. They occupied uh, homes. Uh, they fought uh, the cops off. There's a very famous picture of the... Um, uh, BLF leader Jack Mundy uh, being dragged off um, from a home occupation uh, by four New South Wales uh, cops, but they won the fight. Like the, the rocks exist uh, today because the BLF uh, had that fight. And one of the other big sort of resolutions of these um, battles uh, over the, the green bands um, was the building uh, of the Sirius building, um, which is a large sort of notorious building actually uh, in Sydney because of its style of architecture, which is brutalist. And, like, people will debate you for hours about whether this is like. I think it's nice, personally. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah,
2: I I work in a brutalist tower, so. Yeah. Yeah, Some of them are good. I'm less keen on it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think you either love it or you hate it. (laughs) Um, But really the key thing uh, about the Sirius, other than its architectural style, (laughs) was um, this was a demand that Mm. from the BLF that the government had to build purpose-built housing for working-class people uh, in the Rocks uh, and Millers Point. And so inside that building was really quite extraordinary, like a style of public housing that you just don't see today. Large apartments really built uh, with how people would actually want to live them, uh, in, live in them uh, in, in mind. Um, so really a, a testament to actually what could be one um by uh, a union that that was prepared to actually have a fight over housing and use, crucially their industrial power not just to have a debate with government to present some rational arguments about how things might be better, how they could do things better, but to force the government into actually doing things to address uh, housing for working-class people.
0: Yeah, I I do love the serious building um, partly because I think it – that style of architecture to some extent in places like Germany and, and elsewhere, it was about exploring in the 70s during in this radical period, the idea that ordinary people deserve housing and the housing should be built in nice places with good views. The serious building had amazing views. Um, and... Some of the stuff you were saying before, like it should have communal spaces that are shared. So all of the rooftops of the of the Sirius building were like these communal spaces that all the residents could gather on and have parties on and stuff like that. So there was a bit of experimentation in the 70s um, with ideas about, uh, about Basically, public housing and housing being a right, and that actually kind of informed some of the the architecture. It was like, yeah, we should build this, you know, be, be able to build as much of this as possible. And so, it used often fairly cheap and um, easy to acquire materials, um, but you know, with the actual lived experience of residents in mind. Um, another thing about the BLF is just the it kind of goes to the point that we've made about you know, capitalism, housing under capitalism versus housing under socialism. Because one of the the key things that the, the leaders of the BLF always reiterated was that we do want to build stuff. Like we're for building stuff, you know, not just because our members want jobs, but because we want society to progress. We want you know more people to have houses and we want more buildings, but we don't want to just build any old crap. Um, and we don't want to just build something that is profitable to developers, but something that is actually good for society. And so they had this kind of social conscience that they took with them in, in everything that was being built. And they wouldn't just build something because it was profitable. So they ended up holding up about $5 billion worth of development in that era because they deemed it to be uh, not you know fit for uh hum- for that society but at the same time they demanded that things like the serious building and, and other public housing buildings were actually created for ordinary people
2: yeah and there's a real connection again with the question of the environment um which is today like so rarely talked about as this class question of like working class people living in horrific environments that are bad for their health as well as you know bad for the planet um but you know one of the the reason they called the green bands was like the first green band was actually around um saving kelly's bush saving some um uh, bushland um in sydney it wasn't even in a working-class suburb they were actually yeah. in a pretty middle <laughs> pretty class leafy, suburb. Not sure. um, but these uh construction workers um you know that attitude of like well we, we're not just here in the union to fight for higher wages, although that was core and central and something the union should be doing now. Um, but what's the point of winning higher wage wages if you're choking on smog in unlivable cities, um, being forced to tear down the houses of other working class people? So, um, really challenged just like. The basic prerogatives of capitalism—that it's the bosses that have the right to determine what gets built, what gets turned down. Uh, the Builders Labourers Federation said, "No, fuck that. Um, we're the ones that do the work. We're going to determine what gets built, what gets torn down." Um, and it's um, actually there are just—if you live in Sydney, there are just signs of this um, still everywhere. We've still have lived with some of the remnants of the um, the spaces that they've saved. Basically, anywhere that you're in Sydney, you go like, oh, it's good we still have this. I'm pretty shocked that this wonderful park still exists. Probably the Builders' Labourers Federation saved it.
1: Mm -hmm, Totally. And I think the other thing is that, um, you know, the Builders' Labourers Federation really showed that workers could fight, they could use their industrial power and actually have wins uh, about housing, about building uh, public housing. But, of course, as socialists, we think, well, these are absolutely things we need to fight for now, but we need to be able to go even further. That We need to be able to actually dismantle the system, you know, of capitalism uh, that is actually creating all of these problems uh, for in, in housing. But I think that's another thing actually that the BLF struggle shows is that um, the way that it can uh, give people the confidence actually that they can have these sorts of fights and they can win them, that so much more is possible Um, than just having to accept, uh, you know, that you're not going to be able to afford the house that you're going to get evicted, or the decisions about whether um, housing gets built or how it's going to get built is just going to be made uh, by some far off politician uh, in, in Parliament. And the resonance really of the BLF struggles, like they lasted through the years. When I met Miller's Point residents in 2014 when the the, uh, Liberal State Government uh, announced itself, like it's a living memory in that community in Miller's Point of the BLF uh, and their fights. So I think this is the thing, like it shows what we can win now in terms of actually doing something about housing, but it also really shows – that how people's confidence, workers' confidence, can be built. That they actually have the power uh, to do something about things like this, to win those sorts of changes in the here and now, to make people's uh, working class people's lives better, to Im- improve their housing, but then ultimately also to be able to pose a challenge uh, to capitalism uh, a- as a system.
3: The of the revolution.
2: Thanks for listening to Red Flag Radio. Um, If you enjoyed our discussion uh, with Martin um, and if you're living in New South Wales, you can hear from Martin again uh, later this year at the Socialism Conference um, that's taking place at Sydney University um, in August. And Martin's actually going to be doing a talk on a similar topic. He'll be talking about housing and debt, how capitalism shapes our cities.
0: And there are a bunch of ways to join the fight for affordable and public housing here in Australia. If you're in Melbourne, get involved in Victorian socialists who are currently campaigning about the housing crisis. They're demanding a city built for people, not for profits. They've been hosting forums, door knocking, calling protests, all sorts of things around a bunch of different housing related issues. So get involved if you can. And if you're a student anywhere in Australia, get involved with the National Union of Students campaign called Get A Room. It's demanding affordable housing for domestic and international students across the country. And we'll put links for those campaigns in the show notes if you want to find out more.
2: And if you like what we do at Red Flag Radio, uh, help us spread socialist ideas to the masses by becoming
0: a Patreon supporter. Until next time, we have a world to win.